in five, four, three. Hey, everybody. This is Danielle. Oh, and this is Daniel. <laughs> and this is Carla. We are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. What's the weather like? Fucking cold. Oh, so cold. It's so cold. I can't even put my Diet Coke on the front porch. Oh, no. Because it's going to fucking freeze. <laughs> oh, no. I know. Oh, no. Life is hard. Well, I've been using it as my personal refrigerator. The front porch. <laughs> Not now. You know. When they show all those starving children in Africa, you know what I think? I bet they don't know what it's like to go outside and all your Diet Coke is frozen because it's so <laughs> cold out. I'm going to start leaving them in the freezer and let them explode in there. Haven't you done would that. just be the one to pick it up. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> hey, what? how was the other night? I, I wasn't going to tell Daniel so he could hear it the first time here. <laughs> but mom told him. I went to my work party and I got really, really drunk. And I apparently Online. left. You were... Carla was a wino for the night. I don't know why. <laughs> why would I do that? Is that what you drank? I was like, bear makes you fat. I'm going to drink the free wine. Well, it was free. Where was it at again? Crane Bay. I don't know if I've ever been there. It's um, it's really nice. We had a good time. And then I got to the bar and CJ was there and he was like, I got you a shot. And I was like, cool, let's mm. take it. And then after that, I was a blur. But how did you get home? I don't know how I got home, okay? You got home in an Uber, right? I took an Uber, apparently, but I got there and didn't have any keys to my house. And then the spare key wasn't in the spot it was supposed to be in. And you went, oh, no, in my drunk mind, oh, no. Oh, no. So instead of just calling mom, what time was it? Like- I called CJ. He said he was coming back to let me in. And that does- during that time, I called mom and she <laughs> said she was coming to <laughs> But you didn't call her, you FaceTimed her. Like, it was more dramatic if you No, it wasn't. Her. It's probably the last time I talked to her was a FaceTime. I just clicked on it. Okay. But it was extra loud and it woke down. The version she tells is that you called her and said she couldn't get in the house. <laughs> that you had CJ was gone. You didn't know where CJ was at. Uh-huh. You were in a, a dress. I was, no and that you I didn't was, have your keys. And you're on your front porch and it's freezing, so we couldn't just make you sleep on your porch. No. <laughs> so mom gets outside, is heating up her your, car, your trying poor to chip mother away the out ice. in the ice, and you're trying to throw her under the bus and be like, oh, well, this is actually her fault. I didn't say that at all. <laughs> I just like, said it. I wasn't trying to be dramatic because I literally wasn't trying to do anything. <laughs> I I just was trying to get inside, so I just did what. At least you didn't go extremely. You called every. You were gonna. You were gonna call everyone on your phone list until you got inside the house. Honestly, I might have done that. Yeah, like someone is coming to let me in, whether they have keys or not. (laughs) (laughs) You. The thing is, if you call me, my phone, you know, is on silent. Like I put mine on Do Not Disturb, and Mm -hmm. then it's like I got to sleep. It was just, and I didn't. I just was really drunk, and I didn't even realize I talked to CJ before I talked to mom. Okay. I yeah, understand. what the hell? I'm not like a bad person. I, I just you were, made like, a CJ's mistake. On his way, but I want mom. I want someone here sooner, so I no. call mom and say. <laughs> I just don't even know what happened. And then when CJ did get there, I said, "My mom's coming," and he said, "Give me your phone." Oh yeah, and I, I think he <laughs> Facetimed her. Yeah, then too. Guys, <laughs> like, guess what? It was probably just the last thing that conversation that. But we it had. makes it funnier. <laughs> I'm not a bad person for getting locked out of my house. Okay. Nope. Uh, I I fell asleep on the porch. Why you were waiting? Yeah. Okay. 
And CJ, At least you were drunk enough. CJ you were warm. said he expected me to be like sitting on one of the chairs, like waiting for him. But I was <laughs> curled up in a ball with a blanket on top of me. At least there was that blanket. Yeah, yeah. Your Sherpa blanket. Yeah, <laughs> that hangs over. The- and I, my guess, my I ripped. I like dumped my purse out. I the front porch was destroyed because I was looking for the key. <laughs> a wild drunk animal. But I also think like like. I remember looking back and like falling many times Um, looking for it. But you're okay, right? I don't feel good still. Aww. My mom goes. So, what's the moral of the story? Um, Make sure the spare key is where it's supposed to be at all times. Mm -hmm. We still don't know where it went, do we? CJ's friend brought it into the house Uh, the night before. Yeah. So, and then I normally never leave without my key, but I was in kind of a hurry because I was running late. And with a dress, you have less places. Mm -hmm. Like, Mom goes, I think I'm kind of past the rescuing days. <laughs> I was like, you have kids, you're not. That's you're not. not fair. I mean, <laughs> it's not like I did this on purpose. There's always a key there. Yep. And I was confident it was there, but I didn't leave the house thinking, I'll just use a spare key to get in. Like, I just forgot. Mm-hmm. But you said you called CJ and CJ told you he could get you in the house. But then she. And her, then you called your mother. Because I don't, I literally, I was fucked it. up what? out of my mind. <laughs> but did you have fun before all this? Yeah, it was okay. fun. But I just was, it got to that point and like, I don't remember a whole lot, but I you got home, fell asleep though. on the ground. You didn't DUI it was, nobody. It was under 30 degrees. But you were warm because of the booze. I don't, yeah. That was a really pretty dress you had on. Yeah. And you got your nails did. I'm never drinking again. I'm never so. drinking again until the next time I'm drinking I don't, again. honestly, like, I never It gets harder, again. like, your body can't handle it the older you get. I just, you know, I don't. It's okay, we love you. Okay, I'm just uh, to reiterate, I'm not a bad person because I forgot my keys. I just had a moment. It's my job to forget things. I see. I don't really like. She never really has to bail me out. No, anymore. that's what I mean. Is because she hasn't done it in so long. She's like, I think I was past the rescuing days. <laughs> well, you guys would have all felt bad if I went missing. Yeah, there Danielle. You go. Yeah, I would have. Yep, I would have felt bad. It would have been a crime. I'm honestly, that's my most terrified of is that I would have said of a crime. Go figure. Well, the Uber thing is scary. Like, Lyft and Uber, you just never know. Don't get in cars with strangers as we get in cars with strangers. Yeah, but that worked out for you. It's worked oh, out. Oh, I got in. Yeah, I shouldn't have gotten in Daniel's car. We had just met and I got in his yeah, car. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, we had some pretty meaningful conversation. We did not. We did the Kama Sutra. And, uh, I, I like Chuck Park too. <laughs> we, might have, we might have got that far. We vomited up our emotional baggage within the I first five so. minutes. I think yeah, our, we did. First, our first con- No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Our first conversation was pretty meaningful in, in person. So, Because well, at that age, we're just going to get the baggage out of the way. Either you're going to pick at it up. At that age. What age? 45. <laughs> 45. You were like 24. Yeah. But at that age, we'd come to the point where emotionally I'm emotionally like, ready to commit to a person. Yeah, and for I'm going to throw my baggage out in front of you, and either you're going to help clean it up, or you're going to go, "Nah, that's not. No, that's not for me. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's going to be a no for me, dog. No for me. Okay. Thank you for sharing during special share time. I appreciate it. Your it's vulnerability. Been a while. It's really been a yeah, while. It since has. I've we had haven't a story had. like that. Yeah, you haven't been fucked up in a while. No, because I can't. Because I'm working out, man. Yeah. I didn't eat all day yesterday until about midnight, and I had some cereal. And I woke up this morning; I didn't feel good again. Mm -mm. So then I waited until four p.m. and then I ordered a steak burger, (laughs) 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 a steak burger, chicken fingers, and then I didn't realize those both came with fries. 
Oh. And then I ordered another fry. <laughs> and you didn't bring anything here? I gave CJ one of them. Okay. And I ate everything else. Man. I was hadn't eaten in like what, three days? 48 hours. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, what is it? I was throwing up. Then her daughter was throwing up. I was like, threw, I didn't make it to the bathroom. And I was like, and I yelled to Daniel. I go, I didn't make it. <laughs> How do you not make it? <laughs> Remember? How With do you what, not now? make it? I threw it? up in the entryway to the room. Oh, yeah. How do you not make it? Because it was coming up. Her and I had actually. I've and what did I do? He cleaned it up. Yeah, he did. That's how you know. Yeah, he did right away. Like how dogs do. I went and I lapped it up. <laughs> he was the dog. You can't get let him get near that. He will clean it up. Yeah. But then our daughter was in bed and she's like, my tummy hurts. And I was half asleep and I'm like, okay, that's nice. <laughs> and then right on the sheets you I haven't taught up. your kid to like get up if they're gonna throw she up. wasn't gonna make it because i was on the oh, other okay. side of the bed like she would have had to climb over me and she's not that fast hey you know what i've been zipped up into a sleeping bag and made and it out unzipped myself and unzipped the tent fast enough to get my head outside that's pretty good that's yeah. impressive and then i was she... scared the bears were gonna come from my vomit they wow wouldn't. you're more advanced than a four-year-old <laughs> I, at least if I hadn't sat up, she would have thrown up on me. But then we were at Target, and I've told you about this, where I was buying new sheets because the other one, my, the cashier checking out, us out was pregnant, but I, I didn't say that. I just could tell that she was. So I had our four-year-old explain to the cashier why. Never assume so. No, no, pregnant. I never say it. I explained to the cashier why I was buying new sheets. And she goes, well, your cactus ones have a hole in it, and I threw up on the other ones. <laughs> She's like, Okay. <laughs> I don't know if the cashier had kids or not yet, besides the one she was cooking. Great. Yeah, she's like, great. I can't wait. I have a a funny story about messing with somebody at Target along those lines of childbirth and whatnot. Can you share? Probably. I mean, you can say my ex had Uh a daughter. Yeah. And we were at Target. And I was I was alone with her daughter, carrying her through the store, and we're just you know going around looking at stuff while she did the grocery shopping or whatever. And we're I'm going through like getting like toothpaste and different stuff, and we walk down the um, um, aisle with the family planning shit. Yeah, and there were these two teenage kids, like a boy, a couple, mm-hmm. looking at condoms. Condoms, and they like. All of a sudden, notice I was there, and I noticed what they were doing, and they noticed that I noticed what they were doing, and I just can't help myself because I'm this kind of person. I, like, kind of propped her up, and I said, I go, yeah, that's how this happened. (laughs) (laughs) And pointed to the condoms. Yeah. And uh, the girl's eyes got real big, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, you could see in the guy's face, he all of a sudden went, I'm not going to get laid. Thanks, dude. <laughs> and I said in my head, you're welcome. Yep. <laughs> you cock-walked it. Hey, you know what? For the best. I could have I saved whatever. Yeah. You never know. That's funny. You never know. Okay, we have some Patreon people. TS, which I'm not sure if that's initials or just good letter choices. Are they the ones in Wheel of Fortune? You get one of them? How many you get? RS... T-L-N? Mm-hmm. Something like that. It looks like R.L. Stein. Yeah, R.L. Stein. Yeah. That's exactly what it looks yeah. like. <laughs> and Toby upped his pledge. And then Sandra and Kristen are giving us money, which I appreciate. Like, today I had to go buy ink. And I got, that's 20 bucks. And I did printer ink. Thanks, hoes. <laughs> I appreciate it. I do. And it's interesting content. It's different than the regular stuff. 
and they come out the last day of the month. So go give us a dollar. Get f- 50 cents per episode. That's two fair. extra episodes. That's real. I mean, usually pod- podcasts will ask like five bucks a month. And I was like, listen, I know where we fall in life. I don't have <laughs> delusions of grandeur. I, I know, know I'm not worth five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I know who I am. <laughs> a couple reviews. Five. This is from Carrie Argent. At Carrie Argent. Five stars. By far one of the better podcasts I've listened to. You guys are funny, interesting, and very entertaining. In my opinion, you guys do a great job with researching the topic at hand and revealing details that other podcasts will leave out for whatever reason. I love this podcast and I'm so excited to hear more in the future. Keep up the great work. I'm from Elk- Elkhart County and highly recommend this to not just other Hoosiers, but anyone. And yes, stay out of the corn. That yes. was well thought. That was I like really that. Well very thought. nice. She's a writer. Yeah. The Misery Machine. Oh, you would think this person is leaving a bad review just mm-hmm. by the title. They're not. Excellent. Fine. We came across your show on Instagram and decided to give it a listen. Very glad we did. The hosts are a breath of fresh air and a joy to listen to. The topics are interesting, interesting and binge worthy. Keep up the great work. Cannot wait to bring you more. Kurgi and Drooby? Kurgi? Kurgi. I got no, a Kurgi. No, Yurgi. Yurgi. I'm sorry. I don't know. I can't pronounce things. I'm, I'll have a couple more. We'll read next time since we've been talking long enough. Okay. Um, today's episode, I would say, is like a roundabout. And we all love roundabout? a good roundabout. Past like three on the way to take her to school People every day. can't manage to do roundabouts. Mm-mm. I almost actually got hit in one the other day. Because someone just decided they were going, and I was like, I am, I do have the right of way. I'm I don't going. understand what's so fucking difficult about it. I don't either, but also I thought of, I I pictured a cul-de-sac that whole time. And I was like, no, nope. this guy hit a cul-de-sac. Zach, how'd you do that? Just kidding. I know, I know what roundabout is now. Okay, so I first heard about this from Women and Crime. And they have another podcast. They're smart people, too. They have, like, degrees and stuff. And I think... Had, teach people at a college i think they teach people things the opposite oh, yeah i don't do that direct appeal that's their other one which is good but as i'm listening you, you'll catch the word that made me go oh oh we could use this moist no uh no panties euchre yeah you <laughs> and then the rabbit hole that that led into so this is a very brief summary of this crime that led me to the rest of the story to hear more about it Go listen to women in crime. And I think Sword and Scale did a two-parter on this before whatever happened to Sword and Scale happened, because I'm not real sure. Uh, you don't know? Well, I the host, I don't know. I mean, I know, but I don't know. Well, you know. Something about jerking off and trying to hit pigeons with your semen, I think, happened. Really? Yeah. What? That's not I'm where not I thought that sure. was going to go. Nope, it's not. It took a hard left. Mm-hmm. So this is Sheila Davalu, D-A-V-A-L-L-O-O. And her family immigrated to the United States in the late 1970s to escape the chaos and violence of Iranian revolution. This is from Oxygen. This stuff. Snapped? Yeah. (laughs) She and her parents, medical and health professionals, landed safely in their new country and settled in the New York suburb of Yorktown Heights. Like her mom and dad, Sheila was a gifted student, but bowing to family tradition, she was married just out of high school. Ew. Arranged? Yeah, probably. As a young newlywed, she... Well, good thing the family escaped all that shit. To reinforce... (laughs) But you still have to marry too young. As a young newlywed, she enrolled at the University of Stony Brook in New York, where she earned a degree in biochemistry. Smart person. After college, Sheila attended graduate school at New York Medical College. There, she met a fellow student named Paul Christos. 
and they begin having an affair. When her husband, that I can't pronounce, found out about it, he and Sheila divorced, which, okay, don't have an affair, but if you do, just, you know. If they'd been back in the old country, he could have done something about yeah, it. Yeah, but I don't think he did. Despite the scandal, Paul and Sheila stayed together, and they were married in 2000. They moved to Pleasantville, New York, and following that following year, Paul worked for- Oh, there's a, there's a movie about that. Pleasantville? Pleasantville? Yeah. yeah. Reese Witherspoon, right? Yes. <laughs> Paul worked for Cornell University at its New York City campus. Just like the Nard Dog. The Nard Dog. <laughs> <laughs> we started watching The Office more. The rabies one. Less than 500 people a year are affected by rabies. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Three people a year die from rabies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> This is the face of rabies. Oh, Jesus. Doesn't it disgust you? <laughs> he hit her with his car. Okay, while well, Sheila landed a job as a research scientist at Purdue Pharma. Boo. Yeah, so okay, that word. So I don't think, are they related? Purdue Pharma and Purdue University? No, but I didn't know that when I heard it. <laughs> so I like instantly stopped what I'm doing to look this up. But that was a rabbit hole. And there is an Indiana connection. It is on the Purdue Pharma side. But I have to finish this story. And I just we'll... know Purdue Pharma charges a lot for insulin. That's what I've heard these days. Oh, well, okay. We'll talk about them in, after we finish this. Okay. Okay. And this is located in Stamford, Connecticut. Though things were going well for the couple, the heat of their once passionate affair grew cooler. The two were living more like roommates instead of spouses, said Sheila. In the summer of 2001, Sheila met co-worker Nelson Sesler at a happy hour get-together after work. Ooh. Just the thought of being Mrs. Mrs. Sesler. They soon began a sexual relationship, according to court documents. Nelson, however, had no idea the woman he was sleeping with was married. In order to cover up her affair, Sheila concocted a complicated subterfuge. Yes. I love when a good subterfuge happens. Was she just out to confuse everyone? Watch, yeah. Fooling both husband and lover. To get rid of Paul for the night or weekend, she told him her mentally ill brother was visiting and he would become upset if he knew she was married. It's not totally I mean, there are people that have, like, change upsets people with some mental disabilities. And so, like, a routine is the most effective. And, you know, it, it is. That can happen. But this is bullshit. Paul actually. Bullshit. Paul actually helped his cheating wife remove any trace of his existence from their home packing up clothes, toiletries, and photographs before going off to spend the night at his parents' house or one of his friends' houses. And I think I also heard at a hotel, because he was working at a, on a dissertation or something, so it's like, I don't mind being left alone to work on so this. So he was smart, but he was dumb. Yeah. When Nelson would arrive to the sleepover, he assumed Sheila lived alone, and Sheila was not the only one with multiple romantic interests. Okay, so her husband wipes himself out of the house every few nights or on the weekends, and then Nelson comes over. But at the same time, as she was seeing Nelson, he was dating another co-worker at Purdue Pharma named Annalisa Raimondo. Eventually, he would break things off with Sheila and move in with Annalisa in her Stanford apartment. Sheila seemed to take it in stride, telling Nelson... Well, so they were all, I mean... Yeah. Telling Nelson the relationship was just a summer fling. I think he told her, I'm all down for Pound Town, but I'm not going to put a ring on it. Like, you're not wife material. And plus, she's already fucking married. So he wanted yeah. to marry this other who was Annalisa was very smart and pretty and someone that deserved to be treated well. And he wasn't treating her well. That's nice. Privately, however, she obsessed over Nelson and plotted to eliminate Annalisa. 
Among those she consulted about the relationship was her own husband. Paul testified that Sheila spoke to him daily about a love triangle at work between her friend, Melissa, Annalisa, and Jack. So she's coming home to gossip about a work love triangle that she witnesses, you know, as a outsider, you know, gossips with them about their love triangle. <laughs> that. She would constantly ask me why Jack would do this, what he was thinking, and what Melissa should do, Paul said. Sheila told her husband she spied on Annalisa and Jack with Melissa and wanted to break into her apartment to look at photos, which it's like, so she is the one in the love triangle and she probably gets a kick out of telling her husband about these sexual escapades that actually involves her and another man and not these imaginary people. I mean, that's, that's dark. She's conniving. Isn't yeah. She? On the morning of November 8th, 2002, Sheila did just that. She entered Annalise's apartment and stabbed her multiple times on the face, neck, and chest. One puncture wound reached the back of her lung. Annalisa also suffered blood force trauma to her head. To throw authorities off her trail, Sheila called with a fake description of a male assailant. I think the guy is attacking my neighbor, she can be heard saying on the recording. I don't know her name, but she's my neighbor. She lives at 105... It's a black guy. Yeah. I saw a guy go into her apartment. And so they're like, okay, where's the address? And at first it sounds like almost an innocent mistake of like you're upset and I'm confusing the street names. Like during the explosion, it happened on Fairfield or Field Fair. Like that's the name of the street mm -hmm. and it's easily confused. And it did throw off um, rescue services because they're like, wait, is it Field Fair or Fairfield? And then it's like, fuck, I don't know. It was Field Fair. Yeah. But, it's, you know, street names are easy. No, I don't upset. know if that would have made any difference no, in getting no. there. Like the yeah. one way in, one way out was a problem, too. Yeah. Yep. So, anyways, if this was someone legitimately calling 911 to report an assault and being, like, getting the address bumbled up, like, that happens because you're upset. She wasn't telling the right address on purpose. Oh. Yeah. Oopsie doodles. She didn't identify herself and hung up after fumbling the address. The 911 dispatcher called back and discovered the call had come from a payphone at a restaurant near the crime scene. The restaurant's manager couldn't recall seeing anyone at the payphone. Responding to the 911 call, authorities converged on Annalise's apartment. They opened the door and walked in on a horrific, violent assault scene. Stanford Police Captain Richard Conklin told Snapped, A drop of blood was lifted from the bathroom sink where detectives believe the killer used to wash up after the attack. Paul would later recall Sheila had a deep cut on her hand around the time of the murder. She claimed it came from opening a can of dog food, which can happen. I almost cut off my right middle finger opening a can of wet cat food. Yeah, it was rough. This it was, you almost cut it off well, all no, the way? Not all the way, but it felt like it. Wow. What was it like almost losing a finger? Look, that cut, you know what? Fuck Very you. brave. Fuck you. Very, very brave. <laughs> that's why That's what I fell in love with you so quickly. I went, this lady's brave. Look at that. Look at that little scar in that finger. I bet. I bet it's not a little scar. I bet that was super scary, wasn't it? You know what? No one likes you. Such a brave girl. No one likes you. Such a brave, brave. You're gonna end up getting cut now. You making fun of me? Well, when and when I do, you know what? It's your fault. Nuh-uh. It's your fault. And you know, as soon as I call you and I go, I'm bleeding. I have to go to the hospital. You're gonna go. Shit! This is my fault. Drive yourself. Call an Uber. I'll have to take me. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> he responded. Okay, Nelson arrived at the apartment after, late afternoon, completely unaware of what happened. He responded calmly when informed of his fiance's death, which raised the suspicion of investigators. 
He was brought in for questioning, but was cleared the following day when Stanford police reviewed security records at, from Purdue Pharma. They have very good security camera security system, and they were able to show what time he punched in now. So it's like you weren't faking if you were being there or not. Following up on Sheila's bogus tip, authorities searched for a male suspect to no avail. They also sought out the 911 caller who had claimed to be one of Annalise's neighbors. While police chased dead ends and phony leads, Sheila used the occasion to renew her relationship with Nelson. She consoled him in his time of grief. Oh, Nelson. Even though he didn't seem all that upset about it. And by January 2003, they were sleeping together again, according to court documents. She even used the same visiting brother ruse to get her husband away from the house again. You know, like, my mentally ill brother is coming over. You need to scrub yourself of your existence here. Okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> What's this lady's name? Sheila Davalu. With her rival for Nelson's affections out of the way, it was now time for Sheila to get rid of her husband. You can't just divorce him because that would be too easy. It was a Saturday afternoon on March 22nd, 2003, when she suggested to Paul that they play a bedroom game to spice up their failing marriage. I don't know if one bedroom game is going to fix it at a certain point. Hey, she was going to try, you know? Yeah, yeah. One person would oh, be... what kind of game? I'm going to tell Were you. Were they that. reindeer games? <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a mustache ride. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a mustache ride? Super, super troopers? Scary. Yeah, super troopers. She goes, I do. I do. I do. German lady, no one remembers this. Okay, I have yes, to put I it do. in. Okay. <laughs> Make me feel dumb. I was looking at you ask, asking no, if you wanted stop. a mustache ride. Stop. <laughs> there. <laughs> okay, one person would be bound and blindfolded while the other touched them with different objects. And I'm assuming it's random household items like rubbing an onion on their leg or something and be like, can you guess what this is? Ew. Hands them spaghetti. <laughs> it's the witch's hair. Yeah. <laughs> the peeled grapes. <laughs> Eyeballs. Eyeballs. <laughs> so they had to guess what the objects were. And it's just like, what would you get to rub on someone? <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> it's a cucumber. <laughs> Gross. Okay. I heard her go down to the kitchen. And when she came up, she said, this is one last item, one last thing to guess. Paul later testified, I felt her sit on me. And then I felt a thrust, like a heavy weight was on my chest. And then another thrust. Sheila had stabbed him twice in the chest with a paring knife, which is not a very big knife. Paul begged her to call 911, but his wife stalled for some time, hoping he would bleed to death instead of calling emergency dispatch. She phoned Nelson and asked him to come over for dinner later that night. Excuse me? That's... Like, they can tell if you haven't called 911. Like, you have a phone record. So she's telling her husband, I'm on the phone with 911. They said they have to attend to real emergencies first, and yours isn't, like, super emergency. And they'll be here in 30 minutes. And it's like, and she couldn't get him out of the chair. Like, I don't know if he was handcuffed and they couldn't get the handcuffs undone. So at one point, I think she said it was, she had a candle near him, and the wire that was in the candle, like, holding the wick must have cut him but that's terrifying to actually be stabbed in the chest and be like your wife isn't calling 911 oh because she, he doesn't know she just stabbed like him. He, he thinks that's what like he just like saying something heavy and like you know okay after almost an hour had passed she agreed to drive paul to westchester medical center in the parking lot she stabbed him a third time this time she nicked his heart paul managed to escape and a group of bystanders who witnessed the attack called police he survived following open heart surgery and Sheila was arrested for attempted murder. 
So he survived his wife stabbing him three times. And like, wow. No, with a paring knife. Um, detectives in Westchester drove to Stanford to talk to Nelson after seeing Sheila had called him in between stabbing her husband. Learning his girlfriend had recently been killed, they spoke with detectives. Where are they at? Stanford? No, no, no. I thought you said Westchester. Medical Center. So where are they at? What state? New York. Close to New York. Connecticut. Where Connecticut and New York meet. Okay. I feel like. But also, she was familiar with this hospital and pretended to get lost in the parking lot. It's like, the ER is really obvious. Like, I can understand. Be like, I can't find... The women in the women OBGYN section of this or where's oncology? You know, like those could be hard to find if you're not familiar with the hospital. Like, you, yeah, emergency the, is clearly marked. Yeah, it's like this way. If you're dying, please. So they went to investigate Annalisa, her murder and discovered these are kind of connected. When we heard the 911 tape, I said to them, you know, that's Sheila Davalu's voice. One of the detectives said. In 2004, Sheila was found guilty of attempted murder and assault for the stabbing of her then-husband, Paul Christos. She was sentenced to the maximum 25 years in prison without the possibility of parole. After slowly and methodically building the case against her authorities in Connecticut, arrested Sheila in prison for the murder of Annalisa. What happens when you get arrested while in you're prison. already incarcerated? I don't know. They like... handcuff you like twice. Aha! Aha! Two <laughs> handcuffs. Take that. Bet Aha. they didn't see this coming today. Uh-uh. <laughs> The prosecution rested on two damning pieces of evidence, Sheila's voice on the 911 call on the afternoon of the murder, and the blood sample taken from the bathroom sink, which came back as a match to Sheila Davalu. Oops. She was ultimately found guilty of Annalise's murder and sentenced to 50 years in prison upon completing her 25-year sentence in New York Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women. She'll be transferred to Connecticut prison to begin her 50-year sentence. So I think she doesn't really deny attempting to kill her husband, but she, says, yeah. I didn't kill this other girl that was better than me, by far better than me as a human being. She just was like, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to fucking kill you. All because, all because he didn't think her vag was marrying material. That's all. He's yeah. being honest with yeah, her. Yeah, I'd be like, listen, we'll be miserable if I pretend to, if I marry you, pretending like it's all good in the hood, because it's not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know... That had fuck ton to do nothing with Indiana. Not, yeah, but, but it's connected to something. Yes, it is. It is. I promise. Down this, the rabbit hole. This is a say. rabbit hole. Um, Apparently, down the rabbit hole means taking LSD, which I had no idea. I just thought it meant like duh. Okay, well, someone said it to you. You went day, to college like, too. Okay, you, know? you told her that you were doing something. You're like, go ask mommy. She went to college, and she came in here and goes, she goes, you went to college, and I was like, yes, it's expensive, and then she walked away. <laughs> Oh, what? Um, No, what was it? She asked me, she was trying to ask me questions on stuff and I was trying to work on, I was trying to work on the drums Mm -hmm. and she, uh, she asked me something. I go, I don't know. Go ask your mother. She's smarter than I am. She went to college. (laughs) And then she just came in here. So then she, so, okay. And announced to me that I went to college, (laughs) not to ask me anything. (laughs) Because the first time I told her, mommy went to private school. Go ask her. She's like, huh? Huh? I need to finish my story because. Somebody was talking about going down the rabbit hole, and mm-hmm. I was like, I think I'm going to go to a strip club. <laughs> you think the rabbit so, hole? I thought it was a strip club name or something. <laughs> down the rabbit hole. I don't know if it's like in That'd be a good name for one. Yeah, yeah. It could be a good name for one, but they were talking about dropping Ellis. You, okay. could, st- you could start one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What I was talking to Carla. Club? I know. I'm. She's my first recruit. Oh, okay. 
Be and you said crime. God didn't have a plan for your life. <laughs> true crime, a strip club. We'll have live podcasting and nude entertainment. We will be the most popular podcast. You just took on Earth. the easiest sell and made it hard. <laughs> <laughs> All you have to say is there are strippers and people will come. Okay. And they will come. <laughs> Build it and they will come. <laughs> And we gave them all colorful stage names. Yeah. Yeah. Alice. Alice. And Carla. And Carla. (laughs) They're all named Carla. (laughs) All spelled with a C, though. I don't like that. (laughs) Okay. This is from Wikipedia, Esquire, and Esquire references the LA Times a lot, NPR.com, TheIndianaLawyer.com, and CBSNews.com. This is like a book report, but it's interesting, and I think it's important to know. So never let it be said that I didn't try to make everyone smarter. The company that became Purdue Pharma. So that's where we was. I heard the word Purdue and was like, oh, is that connected? I'm not the only one who has done that. And Purdue has been like, it's not us. Not Purdue. Wrong Purdue. I really was hoping, though, that I caught you at the beginning and it would have been stupid. You did catch me. The company that became Purdue Pharma was founded in 1892 by medical doctors John Purdue Gray and George Frederick Bingham in Manhattan as Purdue Frederick Company. In 1952, the company was sold to two other medical doctors, brothers Raymond and Mortimer Sackler, who worked at Creedmoor Psychiatric Hospital in Queens. They were co-authored, they co-authored more than 100 studies on the biochemical roots of mental illness. So this is kind of important. Like, mm-hmm. that's good. The brothers' research was promising. They were among the first to identify a link between psychosis and the hormone cortisone. But their findings were mostly ignored. By other professionals because they're like, nah, we like that Freud model right now. Like, that is hot. <laughs> you got a bumpy head? Yeah. That's what's up. No, Freudian's different. That's oh. <laughs> <laughs> what was that one? What there? is that? You did, we phrenology. did a Patreon on it. Yeah, phrenology. Yeah. No, Freud is like. You got that like, bumpy ass head. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But this is, but yeah, they're like, nah, we like the Freud better. The brothers eventually relocated their new business to Yonkers, New York. <laughs> Just open it. Say Yonkers again. <laughs> the brothers eventually relocated their new business to Yonkers, New York. At the time, Purdue sold such essential items like earwax removal and laxatives. Oh, good. Yes. Oh, good. Hey, those are important things. Like okay? the same ones Carla took before she got here. <laughs> <laughs> the Sackler's older brother, Arthur Sackler, held a one-third option in the company. Also in 1952, Arthur became the first admin to convince the Journal of American Medical Association to include an advertisement brochure in the medical journal. Under the Sacklers, the company opened additional offices in New Jersey, Connecticut, Stanford, Connecticut. It's like advertising is what they're good at. In 1960s, Arthur... Arthur Hello, Arthur! <laughs> Shalom, Arthur! Uh, was contracted by Roche to develop an advertising strategy for a new anxiety medication called Valium. This posed a challenge because the effects of the medication were nearly indistinguishable from those of Librium, another Roche tranquilizer that was already on the market. Arthur differentiated Valium by boldly inflating its range of indications, whereas Librium was sold as a treatment for garden variety anxiety. Well, I've got a big fucking garden. (laughs) (laughs) Valium was positioned as an elixir for the problem Arthur christened psychic tension. According to his ad, psychic tension was the forebearer of today's stress. I was like, yep. 
was and was the secret culprit behind a host of somatic conditions. That was before they had ways to measure your theon levels. Yeah, that would really have told you the your truth. Thet- is it theon or thetan levels? Thetan, what? Who gives a shit? But you know your stress. You know it's related to your heartburn, gastrointestinal system, insomnia, restless leg syndrome. Hey, I will say stress. There, did they have IBS? Covered? That's what I was going to say. My stress and stock. anxiety is directly connected to my intestines. I'm not going to lie. The campaign was such so successful that for the time, Valium became America's most widely prescribed medication, the first to reach more than 100 million in sales. So, like, they just say it fixes everything. As Arthur's fortune grew, he turned his attention to the art market, quickly amassing the world's largest private collection of ancient Chinese artifacts. Rewarding at first, collecting soon became a mania that took over his life. Like, he was obsessed with Chinese art. Had to have all of it. And I think his wife at the time was like, it was in, like, storage boxes. Like, it wasn't even being, it was in crates and stuff. And it in 1982, he had a bad breakup with the Met. And Arthur donated the best parts of his collection, plus $4 million, to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. He's like, fuck you. I'm giving my artifacts to the Smithsonian. Yeah, fuck you. I mean, but that's what happens when you have so much money. You don't know what to do with it. You start getting weird. Or I am weird. With expensive hobbies. I don't have hobbies, though. So. The present-day company, Purdue Pharma LP, was incorporated in 1991 and focuses on pain management medication, calling itself a pioneer in developing medications for reducing pain, a principal cause of human suffering. Okay, yeah. Yeah. The company's branch included Purdue Pharma LP, the Purdue Frederick Company, Purdue Pharmaceutical Productions LP, and Purdue Products LP. The Sackler name is no less prominent among higher education where it is possible to receive degrees from Sackler schools, participate in Sackler colloquiums, take courses from professors with endowed Sackler chairs, and attend annual Sackler Sackler lectures on topics such as theoretical astrophysics, astrophysics and human rights. The Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science supports research on obesity and micronutrition deficiencies. Meanwhile, the Sackler Institutes at Cornell, Columbia, McGill, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Sussex, and King's College London take psychobiology with an emphasis on early childhood development. All of this sounds great. Like, it sounds very important. And, you know. Uh, what was it recently with Sussex? There was something that uh, Meghan Markle and Harry tried to copyright. I think it was Sussex Royal. Hmm. And someone beat them to it, ah. which I think is fucking hilarious. So all of this sounds really good, but how do you get your name fucking on everything? Like, what does it take? you got to sleep with someone. <laughs> and have a lot of money. <laughs> oh, that one. Okay. The Sacklers' $14 billion fortune was tallied by Forbes came mainly from the production of what drug? Oxycontin. Oxycontin. Really? Mm. The narcotic painkiller regarded by many public health experts as among the most dangerous product ever sold on a mass scale. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. Yep. You would think. Yep. You would think that eventually. Um, and I'm trying to. I was trying to look up something like how to visualize a billion dollars. Google how to visualize a billion dollars. Someone do that for me. All right. Get out a check. <laughs> right. Write $1 billion. <laughs> I mean, like, what's the equivalent, like a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, what's the equivalent to them of what a dollar would be to me? Like, you know. A penny. Equivalent. If they lost $1, that'd be the equivalent of you losing a penny. Like, you do not give a shit. It's probably the equivalent 
of you them losing a hundred dollars if you lost a penny. Yeah, like that's what I want. It. Something. Like, well, then show. why did you say what would it be like if they lost a dollar? I said if I lost a dollar. No, you said they. Okay, this says if one dollar is being deducted from your account every second, so sixty dollars every minute, or three hundred sixty dollars every hour, or four thousand three hundred twenty every day, then. It would still take 32 years to finish spending $1 billion. Oh, my God. And, that, and they have $14 billion. Like, how long would it take to count that much money? It's just like, so if you spend, you know, a million dollars on something, it's like, okay. Yeah, but when you have that kind of money, a lot of that is they don't have $14 billion in cash hanging out somewhere. The company is worth. No. This family is worth fourteen billion dollars. Correct, but you know how that is worth. Do they still own the co- do they still own the company? I think it's the reason Bill Gates is worth so much money is not because he literally gets that much cash. It's because that is what his stock he owns this company and this company and this company. And if he liquidated and dropped everything, that's how much. Now, if Bill Gates decided he was going to dump Microsoft. All of a sudden, the money he had would not be worth as much. Yeah, that's why I'm, they don't want you to sell off stock. They don't want to be associated so much with their pharmaceutical company, but they do make money off of it. So it's like I don't know. The simple but profitable idea was to take a substance with addictive properties. In Arthur's case, it was Valium, the benzo. In Raymond and Mortimer's case, an opioid. And did they get, did they suffer from opioid induced constipation? No, but that's a thing. The market. It as a salve for vast range. So and marketed as this will fix just about anything because for a long time it was like morphine for people that are dying, morphine for cancer patients. Like that's the only people that get these hard drugs and rightfully so. Like people that are end of stages of life, you need to make them comfortable. People that aren't functioning. Your dad, your dad got morphine when uh, they thought he was having a heart attack. Mm hmm. The last time. Yeah. So and he was plenty happy about being left in the hospital yeah, that night. until it was gone. And then the next day, they're like, yeah, you're not getting morphine. Uh, here's a Percocet. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that, and, uh, that's the, not fun. That just puts you to sleep in yeah, the hospital. Yeah. And here's the TV remote. Yep. Relax. <laughs> and then and he doesn't know how to work the fucking TV remote. No. No. <laughs> you laugh because it's true. I know. <laughs> Poor dad. In 1972, cotton. So the the... Not the the second half of the word oxycotton. It's not spelled like my clothes cotton. It's C O N T I N. It's like the part of the bottle when you open up the oxy. There's a little cotton in there. Yeah. You yeah. just pick oh that my out God. and throw it away. That's what that is. <laughs> yes. Well, the cotton part of it is a controlled drug release system that they developed in 1984. Its extended release formulation of morphine, MS cotton, was released. And in 1986, two doctors sounds like a name. MS cotton. Yeah. Yeah. Two doctors from Memorial Sloan Curting Hospital in New York published a fateful article in a medical journal that purported to show, based on a study of a whopping 38 people, that long-term opioid treatment was safe and effective so long as patients had no history of drug abuse. And that they had no problem constantly being constipated. Oh, God. As the patent was set to expire in the late uh, 1990s, in a 1990 memo addressed to executives, Purdue's VP of Clinical Research, Robert Keiko, suggested that the company work on a pill containing oxycodone, a chemical similar to morphine that was also derived from the opium poppy. Okay, when it came to branding, oxycodone had a key advantage. Although it was 50% stronger than morphine, many doctors believed wrongly that it was substantially less powerful. So it's like we can give you more because it's not as strong. 
oh my, how far we've come in <laughs> pain management. They were deceived about its potency in part because oxycodone was widely known as one of the active ingredients in Percocet, a relatively weak opioid, a acetaminophen combination that doctors often prescribe for painful injury. So it's like, it's like codone, oxycodone, it's not as strong. Purdue Pharma also makes pain medicines such as hydromorphone, fentanyl, codeine, and hydrocodone, which fentanyl will fuck you up. Like, that's like a thousand times stronger than morphine or something. You get fentanyl when you're, if you're getting fentanyl, Mm. you really got a problem. Like, I think they gave, after your dad had his bypass surgery, he was on fentanyl. For a little bit. They don't send you home with that shit. No, no, no. (laughs) I mean, no, that's like the first... I mean, you the can first, get it. maybe the second day, and then after that, they switched them. You can get it, I think, in suckers. They make them in suckers. They make them in transdermal patches. I think they make them in some other type of dissolvable thing and in pills. So you can get prescribed fentanyl. No, I've seen the sucker kind before. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it fucks your mouth up. Ugh, ugh. In 1996, it, its extended release formulation of oxycodone, oxycotton, was released. The controversy behind the company emerged as a result of the drugs that were made and how they carried high potential for addiction. The most commonly abused medication that the company prescribed are MS cotton and Oxycontin. Both can be abused by crushing, chewing, snorting, or injecting the dissolvable product. Lovely. Get it in me fast. I need to be fucked up. Um, these ingestion methods create a significant risk to the abuser and they can result in overdose and death. And I keep thinking about Duncan. Can't even go to Duncan anymore. It was like a documentary about people abusing uh, heroin, but it's. You know. Oh, yeah, the heroin epidemic. Yeah. In, uh, it was somewhere in Massachusetts. Yeah. So, like, you can't even go to Duncan anymore. <laughs> I don't know. It's because throughout the entire movie, all the heroin addicts are, are cutting it up with their Duncan Rewards cards. There were like three people, and then it's like they're going. They're going inside Dunkin' Donuts, and there's this lady Just going, I up. can't even go inside Dunkin' anymore. And it's like, Daniel <laughs> looked it up online, and people were like, why is everyone there bad-mouthing Dunkin' Donuts on this stupid documentary? <laughs> Poor Dunkin' Donuts. You've hit it low when mm-hmm. you're ashamed to go to the local fast food donut place. I can't even go to Dunkin' Donuts anymore. Drug-seeking tactics that addicts undergo to obtain the medications include doctor shopping, which sucking is, dick, mm-hmm, yeah, which is visiting a number of different physicians to obtain additional prescriptions and refusal to follow up with appropriate. I'm just here to get drugs. Along with the high potential for abuse among people without prescriptions, there is also a risk for physical dependency and reduced reaction or drug desensitization for patients that are prescribed them. So there's a reverse effect that happens like the more pain medicine you take it actually increases your pain and so you have to take more and more drugs and it doesn't work as well and then you become emotionally dependent as well as physically dependent pain medicine like it alleviates your emotional pain you didn't even know you have sometimes you're like oh i feel so much better about my life in general i'm so miserable (laughs) let's see under a marketing strategy that arthur sackler had pioneered decades earlier the company aggressively pressed doctors to prescribe the drug wooing them with free trips to pain management seminars and paid speaking engagement and they also went to like pebble beach for golfing outings like they're wooing doctors with like hey you're gonna prescribe pain meds anyway why don't you prescribe ours it's like safer and shit and they're like okay we buy you golf trips Mm -hmm. they still do that though yeah they do flush with cash purdue pioneered a a high cost promotional strategy effectively providing kickbacks, which were legal under American law, to each part of the distribution chain. Wholesalers got rebates in exchange for keeping Oxycontin off prior authorization lists. So, like, 
you have to go see a certain type of doctor before you can per- get prescribed. Like if I want acne medicine, my general MD can't prescribe it. I have to go to a dermatologist, like that type of thing. And it's like, fuck you. I just want like the topical cr- cr- treatment for my acne. <laughs> so they kept this drug off those lists. Uh, pharmacists got refunded on their initial orders. Patients got coupons for 30-day starter supplies of drugs. Highly addictive drugs, you get a 30-day starter supply. Academics got grants. Medical journals got millions in advertising. Senators and members of Congress on key committees got donations from Purdue and from members of the Sackler family. None of our politicians Never. Would do that. No. And if you say not the side I voted for, you're a fucking idiot. Mm. The drug was marketed as smooth and sustained pain control all day and all night when taken on a 12-hour schedule and as having lower abuse potential than immediate-release oxycodone because of its time-release properties. Wow. Aleve makes the same claim. Claim 12 hours of release. Yeah. Even though there were no scientific evidence backing that conclusion and that the addictive nature of opiates had been known for thousands of years. So they're like, they just saying it lasts 12 hours when they couldn't, it didn't really last that long. The theory was that addicts would shy away from a time-release drug, preferring an immediate rush. It's like, wait a minute, though. It crushes up just the same as any other drug. <laughs> so all your other pills, they crush the same. But I'll be like, oh, no, not those time-release ones. I don't want those, even though it crushes up and works just as well. Oh, wait, it works better. In practice, oxy- Oxycontin, which crammed a huge amount of pure narcotic into a single pill, became a lusted-after target for addicts who quickly discovered that the time-release mechanism in Oxycontin was easy to circumvent, you could simply crush a pill and snort it and get most of the narcotic payload in a single inhalation. Good God. Yeah, so it's like, fuck that shit, crush that up. This wasn't exactly news to the manufacturer. Oxycontin's own packaging warned that consumers consuming broken pills would thwart the time-release system and subject patients to a potentially fatal overdose. So they're saying, like, on all my drugs that I take, it's like, take as directed, you know, take with food don't you know eat grapefruit with it don't crush it up don't chew it you know stuff like that and you're supposed to follow those instructions so i can see where it says we told them not to crush it up and snort it how more specific do we have to be i told them in spanish how much clearer could i be (laughs) baxter i didn't know you spoke spanish (laughs) it's prohibited In these early years, Purdue Farmer was aware of Oxycontin's abuse, including reports that the pills were being crushed and sorted, stolen from pharmacies, and some doctors were being charged with stealing prescriptions, according to the New York Times. Over 100 internal company memos between 1997 and 1999 included the words street value, crush, or snort. So they were well aware when in their internal memos. At the start of 2000, widespread reports of Oxycontin abuse surfaced, and results obtained from a proactive abuse surveillance program called Researched Abuse, Diversion, and Addiction-Related Surveillances, RADARS, sponsored by Purdue Pharma. So, like, don't worry. We're investigating. We're on it. Right now. It's like, no, you're not, though. Uh, Between 1996 and 2001, the number of Oxycontin prescriptions in the United States surged from about 300,000 to nearly 6 million, and reports of abuse started to bubble up everywhere. Opioid withdrawal, which causes aches, vomiting, restless anxiety, is a gruesome process to experience as an adult, is considerably worse for the 20,000 or so American babies who emerge each year addicted to opioids. So when I had her, I wasn't allowed to leave the floor, (laughs) like, because I had a port in my veins. And they're like, 
Remember this? They said yes. They said that they had uh, women that were going and shooting up through their port. Yeah, and they like they left the hospital over in the gas station. Would be like, hey, we got one of your moms. There's somebody here. over here wearing a nightgown trying to buy smokes, or yeah. not a nightgown. Someone over here in a medical mm-hmm. gown trying mm-hmm. to buy smokes. And I think I was gonna leave to go to the. Like cafeteria. We were going to walk down to the cafeteria. Before and they... I realized I shouldn't be walking at, e- at all. Like, yeah. <laughs> but nobody yeah. stopped us. No. And then I was like, Wait Until we went to go about halfway down. But no one, I mean, seriously, no one told. I mean, if mm-hmm. they would have said, uh, you're not allowed to leave the floor. I wouldn't have. I would have like, okay. I knew she couldn't leave as an infant. I figured walking through the hospital, you know. Yeah, it's like, where do you care where I go? Yeah. And so, yeah, they do. And you were getting out like the next day. Mm-hmm. So, but like, no never mind. Not That's that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Riley, she has to deal with a lot of. If you uh, mm-hmm. if you test positive though for uh, opioids, when you go in, they you know they draw your blood right off yeah. the bat. They won't leave the, after you have the baby and you get out of bed. They'll take the line out. They yeah. won't leave it in. Yeah, it's like yeah. So he's, Riley works at Riley works Hospital. At, yeah, she works at the Children's Hospital and the NICU. So she just sees all kinds of things and. It would be very upsetting. Drug addicted babies are one of them. Yeah, very upsetting. So don't do drugs when you're pregnant at the very least in life. In 2001, Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal issued a statement urging Purdue to take actionary to take action regarding abuse of oxycontin. He did note that while Purdue seemed sincere, there was little action being taken beyond cosmetics, symbolic steps. So their radars thing. He's like, but I don't think you're really implementing anything. You just created something and put an acronym on it. In 2003, the Drug Enforcement Administration found that Purdue's aggressive methods had very much exacerbated OxyContin's widespread abuse. So they're connecting it directly back to this company, which is essentially one family. In 2004, the West Virginia Attorney General sued Purdue for reimbursement of excessive prescription costs paid by the state, saying that patients were taking more of the drug than they had been prescribed because the effects of the drug wore off before the 12-hour schedule. The state charged Purdue with deceptive marketing. So you would go through, you would start to withdraw from the drug, you know, six, eight hours before. So you would need more. So you'd have to take more sooner. So you would need more of the drug to achieve your like 12 hour pain relief. In his ruling, the trial judge wrote, plaintiff's evidence shows Purdue could have tested the safety and efficacy of Oxycontin at eight hours and could have amended their label, but did not. So they were, they're making money off the 12 hour thing. The case never went to trial. Purdue agreed to settle by paying the state $10 million for programs to discourage drug abuse, with all the evidence remaining under seal and confidential. On December 23, 2015, Kentucky settled with Purdue for $24 million. So that's what I was trying to picture. If you are worth $14 billion, how much is, you know, $24 million to you? Like, nothing? No, you're not happy to lose. I mean, no, obviously, yeah. that's a yeah. big deal losing that, but... When the federal government finally stepped in in 2007, it extracted historic terms of surrender from the company. Purdue pleaded guilty to felony charges, admitting that it had lied to doctors about OxyContin's abuse potential. The technical charge was misbranding a drug with intent to defraud or mislead. Under the agreement, the company paid $600 million in fines, and its three top executives at the time, its medical director, general counsel, and president, pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges. The executives paid $34.5 million out of their own pockets and performed 400 hours of community service. It was one of the harshest penalties ever imposed on a pharmaceutical company. So they got in trouble, but don't count them out yet. 
In 2010, Purdue displayed a drastic turnaround by embracing the arguments critics had been making for years about their drug. (laughs) They're like, you know what? You're right. This drug is garbage. It's so addictive. No one should be able to produce it in generic form once our patent expires. No one should. And so they continue to make money off their Oxycontin name brand because the FDA agreed with them. But they felt really bad about it. Yeah. Okay, so it changed. It coincided with an increasing number of addicts unable to afford Oxycontin's high street price when turning to cheaper alternatives like heroin. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't there like an epidemic in mm-hmm. this country? Yeah, oh, yeah. And southern Indiana was getting double fucked because of an HIV outbreak. Yeah. And I remember the judge at the time cited moral and religious obligations to deter, like, to turn away from you know, bad things, and he would not sign off on a needle exchange program oh my God. until the CDC stepped in and said, we're smarter than you. It's like, you can't just be like, okay, HIV can go everywhere because I don't feel morally right about doing a needle exchange program. Well, people are going <clears> to <throat> share needles anyway, so they yeah. need to... Yeah, the CDC was like, you can't, guys. That's not how the law works. No. Purdue suddenly agreed that the drug it had been selling for nearly 15 years was so prone to abuse that generic manufacturers should not be allowed to copy it. Be like, this, you're, you're right, guys. It's awful. Only we should be allowed to make it. Because you can still get Oxycontin. Like, in 2012, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study that found that 76% of those seeking help for heroin addiction began by abusing pharmaceutical narcotics, primarily Oxycontin. And drew a direct line between Purdue's marketing of of Oxycontin and subsequent heroin epidemic in the U.S. These people created the heroin epidemic. Yeah. That's what I was reading this and I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. It's very different from other places in the world because when I was working at Disney and I met a lot of people from other countries, they're like, why do you have commercials for medicine he was like because they make money out of yeah it. <laughs> i'm like that's so weird I'm like yeah i don't know i don't know man <laughs> on april 16th 2013 the day some of the key patents for oxycontin were scheduled to expire okay the fda agreed with them that yeah you keep it just for you no more generics in 2015 with 1700 people on the payroll the company announced it would acquire vm pharma thereby gaining access to worldwide development and commercial rights to an Allosteric Selective Tropozone Receptive Kinesia Inhibitor Program. So more drugs. They were still making money. We're going to make a different drug. The phase two candidate something, something. Uh, the deal could generate more than $213 million for VM Farmer. So we're rebranding ourselves. Different name, different drugs. Still not giving a fuck. According, according to the Center for Disease Control, 53,000 Americans died from opioid overdose in 2016. More than the 36,000s who died in a car crash and, or 35,000s who died from gun violence. So we know this. More people die from drug overdoses. The CDC issued a startling warning. There was no good evidence that opioids were ineffective treatments for chronic pain beyond six weeks. There was, on the other hand, an abundance of evidence that long-term treatment with opioids was harmful. <laughs> like, don't do this drug. Um, this past July... 2017, Donald Trump's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, led by New Jersey Governor Chris Christine, declared that opioids were killing roughly 142 Americans each day, a tally vividly described as September 11th every three weeks. I was like, that's good. Like, that helps you visualize the number of people because it's like, God bless President Trump. Stop. (laughs) (laughs) It just, I don't know. He's just weird. 
September 11th every three weeks. Like the quantity of people that die. September 11th every three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) There has never been a man. And I don't care if you love him, if you hate him, whatever. That that the fucking hand gestures, Ev- like every syllable, helps us. Some people just talk with their it hands. Helps the simpletons absorb things. Okay, <laughs> it's so it's it's so the deaf people can enjoy listening to the president speak. <laughs> oh, They're like he's us. flailing again, They're flailing. No, they they know he's making a good point if he's like. So the president couldn't have a podcast because you can't see him. Deluding ourselves here, though. Tobacco remains by significant the most lethal product responsible for 480,000 deaths per year. So a lot of people die from tobacco. Yep. Recently, oh, they yeah. just raised the smoking age to 21. And people that are millennials that are smarter know not to smoke. No, they don't. Because no, but they the- tried to introduce vaping and t- told oh, people yeah. it was safe. And it's yeah, not. Same idea. The same idea. Like, like, oh, it's better for you. Don't worry. Just because it comes in like a cartridge instead mm-hmm. of a cigarette, it I looks, mean, yeah, people have destroyed their lungs because there's no long-term studies on what it does to you. They'll get there, and then I'll do a, a podcast about. It. <laughs> I hate all tobacco products. I think they're disgusting. So I'm know. I'm here for getting rid of them. I just think it's I just think it's weird to tell a kid you're old enough to go and fight and die for yeah. us. Yeah, and you're not old enough to right. smoke or drink. Yeah, that is weird. But although billions have been made from tobacco cars and firearm, it's not clear that any of those enterprises have generated a family fortune from a single product that approaches the Sacklers Hall from Oxycontin. So that's the difference. It's like, you know, this is one drug, one family. Well, I don't know. Windows 98 was pretty big for Bill Gates. (laughs) How many people have died from Windows 98? (laughs) Well, I can tell you there's been a couple people that have probably stroked out fucking with it, you know. Goddamn piece of shit. (laughs) <laughs> get off the someone get off the phone I'm trying to get into the internet <laughs> between 1995 and 2001 oxycontin brought in 2.8 billion in revenue for purdue pharma uh, cumulative revenues have increased to 31 billion by 2016 and 35 billion by 2017 according to the new yorker purdue pharma is owned by one of america's richest families many u.s states allege the family is worth more than 14 billion in response to this, another journalism's launched the organization Pain, P-A-I-N, to pressure museums and other cultural institutions to di- divest. Is this the cotton family we're talking about? Well, Oxycontin. <laughs> but to divest from Sackler family philanthropy. So what I was saying, their names on all those different schools and everything at the beginning, a long list. Now some janitor has to go out there with a little tool and chip their name off stuff because people are like, I don't want your dirty drug money here. So how bad do you have to be for a charity to not want your money? Like, I don't want your millions of dollars here. No intervention was made by Purdue to contact the DEA for years, despite knowing. So despite knowing of the practice and the overuse and sale of their product, lawsuits are asking for a yet to be determined reimbursement related to cost of policing, housing, health care, rehabilitation, criminal justice system, park and recreations department, as well as to the loss of life or a compromised quality of life of citizens. So how much it's fucked up our entire communities, just this drug and the fallout, like in jail, like is people doing things they shouldn't be doing to get money to get drugs, breaking into pharmacies, robbing banks, stealing shit. It's like, I need my drug money. I need it. But don't worry. In 2018, Purdue Pharma patented a new form of buprenorphine, 
which controls cravings and is used to treat addiction to opioids such as Oxycontin. So they're creating new drugs to help with the drug they created. This makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah, which is still expensive. The buprenorphine, that's not cheap. That's still a brand name. The American market for Oxycontin is dwindling. According to Purdue, prescriptions fell 33% between 2012 and 2016 because we're realizing how awful it is. Yeah, it's not good. But while the company's primary product may be receding in the U.S., international markets for pain medication are expanding. (sighs) They're like, so you stopped us here, but we can go overseas, guys. Like, it's not a big deal. Dozens of lawmakers in Congress, inspired by the L.A. Times investigation, sent bipartisan letters to the World Health Organization warning that Sackler-owned companies were preparing to flood foreign countries with legal narcotics. They give zero fucks in it for the money. You know what would help? Is that Met Lefleur? Just make weed. Just make, Just make weed. weed. Oh yeah, but you know drugs. No, no pot. No, fuck that shit. Well, how many how many people says the pot killed this year? I don't know. I don't it's know. It's got to be up there. Yeah, the hundreds of thousands for sure. Purdue began the opioid crisis that has devastated American communities. The letter read, "Today, this is another name that they've Mun- Mundi Pharma. Cute." is using many of the same deceptive and reckless practices to sell Oxycontin abroad. Specifically, the letter calls out the Sackler family by name, leaving no room for the public to wonder about the identities of the people who started behind Mundy Pharma. So it doesn't look like Purdue Pharma overseas. In May 2018, six states, Florida, Nevada, North Carolina, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Texas, filed lawsuits charging deceptive marketing practices, adding to 16 previously filed lawsuits by other U.S. states and Puerto Rico. By January 2019, 36 states were suing Purdue Pharma. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy complains in her lawsuit that eight members of the Sackler family are personally responsible for the deception. She alleges they micromanaged a deceptive sales campaign. Yeah, but when you have when you have $14 billion, you also have good attorneys. God, yeah. I think they were able to keep most of the family ever from testifying, too. Or one had to testify or get it deposed, a deposition, but it was sealed instantly. Yeah. It's like, in March 2019, Purdue Pharma reached a $270 million settlement in the lawsuit filed by Oklahoma, which claimed its opioid, uh, its opioids contributed to the deaths of thousands of people. August 2019, Purdue Pharma and the family were in negotiations to settle claims for a payment of 10 to $12 billion. The settlement would include a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing by Purdue Farm, which would be restruct- uh, restructured as public beneficiary trust blah, 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 ownership. So addiction treatment drugs currently developed by the company would be given to the public cost-free. So they're trying to, like, smooth it over, I guess. All profits of Purdue would henceforth go to plaintiffs in the cases. On top, the Sackler family would contribute $3 billion in cash. Like, we want your monies. The family would also sell Mundy Pharma and contribute another $1.5 billion from the sales proceedings to the settlement. However, the Sackler family would remain a billionaire family and would not be criminally charged for con- contributing to the opioid crisis. So not in any legal trouble here. Uh, many states refused. Yeah, because if uh, you had $14 billion and the government came and took $10 billion from you, what do you still have? $4 billion. Yeah. Many states refused the terms of their proposed settlement and vowed to pursue further litigation to recover additional money, much of it allegedly to be hidden offshore. Uh-oh. 
These states contended that Sacklers knew litigations would be pursuing Purdue's funds and committed fraudulent conveyance. Most of the wealth of the Sacklers family is not held in Purdue. States are seeking to hold individual family members responsible, personally liable for the cost of the opioid epidemic, regardless of Purdue's bankruptcy. So they knew, well, Purdue farmers about to get sucked hard, so we got to get the money out of it and offshore. So that we can still have the money. And if you have enough money, you can go hide somewhere. Yeah. So I think it was like $10 billion they hit offshore. So that the states that we legitimately fucked up can't have that money to fix themselves. Okay. Here's Indian. <laughs> <laughs> After, After all yeah. this time. Here we are. Mid-2019, the Indiana Attorney General's Office announced a lawsuit against several owners and directors of of the pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma, alleging those members of the Sackler family have played a key role in contributing to Indiana's opioid epidemic. Marion County Superior Court, the complaint alleges that eight members of the Sackler family violated the Deceptive Consumer Sales Act, the Prescription Drug Discount and Benefit Card Statute, the False Claims Act, and the Medicaid False Claims Act among other unlawful activities. We believe the Sacklers' wrongful acts have left a wake of addiction, death, and devastation in Indiana and across the country, said Attorney General Curtis Hill. I hope this lawsuit serves notice to all that this office will continue to hold accountable companies and individuals who are engaging in abusive, deceptive, illegal, and or unfair conduct that causes harm to Indiana consumers. The suit alleges that at the height of the opioid epidemic, From 2012 to 2016, there were 58 Indiana counties with opioid prescription rates greater than 100 plus prescriptions per 100 residents. These numbers have placed Indiana among the highest opioid prescription rates in the entire country. Getting fucked hard. The Sacklers, for their part, have constantly denied any wrongdoing. We're just making the drugs, man. We're just making them and we sell them. You got pain, we got you. They falsely advertised. Yeah, and they went bankrupt. One little thing went bankrupt, but they have just have so much goddamn money. So what does Purdue have to say about all this? Purdue University. Yeah, fuck you. Here's how the Purdue University statement reminds people it is in no way tied to Purdue Pharma. Purdue University is not and has never been affiliated in any way with Purdue Pharma. Purdue University was founded in 1869 as Indiana's land-grant institution, named for benefactor John Purdue. (laughs) Which the reason, and the reason that the confusion is, is uh, that's a big school for uh, pharmacy. Yeah, Yeah, and it's it's veterinarian too, which is pharmacy. A a lot of good stuff, but but still (laughs) Purdue. (laughs) But so when I heard that, I did the same thing a lot of other people do. And Purdue, they said, oh, what? Yeah, we get phone calls and emails wanting to know about our drugs and how sorry we are. Like, we're not sorry. It's not us. So... I got dad's permission to say this quick story, which you might all know. When da- 2007, dad was in A Canada, O Canada, and was prescribed a pill, a bottle, I think 80 oxys, and because he was having neck pain or whatever. I remember the neck pain. And I think he took one or two and it knocked you out and knocked him out, which he needs to sleep, but he also has sleep apnea, so he could die in his sleep. I don't know if he had that problem then. But mom was like, you can't take those things. Like, you can't. Even in 07, our mother, as worldly as she is, knew that shit is addictive. So she was She's like. She's kind of wise beyond her years. And in between her years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a dad thing. <laughs> so he was like, okay, I'm not going to take this shit. Well, he was doing dent repair. I don't think he got deported this time. 
get to pick your choice. <laughs> they don't, apparently the Mounties don't like it when you don't know where you're going when you arrive in their country. <laughs> and he was like, I'm going wherever the work is. <laughs> they don't like that. Um, no. Nope. <laughs> and they, they kicked him out at one point. At some point they came. But, um, so he's working in body shops with maybe some scruffier individuals, you know, some, they're good at, good at their body shop work, maybe a little rough around the edges though. And he had one guy and he was like, I'll give you this bottle of pills if you give me half of whatever you sell. But if you get caught, I don't fucking know you. You stole these out of my truck. And my dad was like, I think I got 60 bucks. Something like that. He goes, that guy could have given me nothing. But he goes, I didn't know what else to do with the pills. (laughs) Fuck, I would have gotten rid of them somehow. Yeah, it's like, you know, what do you do with them? So, yeah, dad was like, what are they going to do about it now? And then back then it wasn't as big as 07. Like the federal government was just getting involved in this big deal. And it wasn't as big of an epidemic. And he's just like, well, I didn't want the pills anymore. Might as well let that guy have them. So this is a long episode because I had, I'm sorry it was so much information about a fucking pharmaceutical company. But it was just like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This one family created this and they're not sorry. Now, I think the generations that are closer to our age have started a lot of other programs for like anything you can think of trying to alleviate their souls man or the the wrongdoings of their predecessors so it's like but still enjoying our blood money yeah oh yeah they're still still having fun here just it just makes you want i'm just mad i don't have that kind of blood money i'm i mean me too but but they had like they had to have some bad things happen they oh yeah it's like you know the shadier shit you do like what deal with the devil did you make what demon did you summon Back in 1950 to get this shit going. I was like, well, I just sold my soul to the devil. Just devil. And now the world is addicted to drugs. I just like. Fucking dunked. The, they did it all for a fiddle of gold. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of fiddle of gold against your soul. Say I'm better, better than you. you. <laughs> my name's Johnny. And this might be a sin. I'll take that bet you're going to regret because I'm the best, best it's ever been. So I just want to take a heartfelt moment to tell the Sackler family, fuck you. And, and let's start, honestly, let's start making it about getting people better instead of making lots of money. Okay. Yeah. Yep, That's yep. like, I can't, I can't with that. No. And I'm sorry to anyone who has chronic pain. I don't have an answer for you, but no. it's unfortunate that anything that would help your pain, you get addicted to. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And I don't know. I have no, I'm not that smart. I'm not smart enough to have solutions to things. Let's just here to open mouth. Open just mouth. use the medical field to help people instead of make lots of money. Yeah. That's my thoughts. My thoughts. I don't want to have to go in one day when I'm trying to pick up my medicine, and all of a sudden, it's $112 per month. I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> I said, well, excuse Oxy me, was man, never I will cheap. not be buying that. Oxy was never cheap, but people still need it. But then they realized that heroin was like seven bucks a bag or whatever, and a lot cheaper than a box of Oxys, you know? So Damn. then you have soccer moms addicted to drugs. And now in Ohio, you have places where serial killers are preying on women that are selling their bodies to feed their drug habits. It's beautiful. It's like a goddamn fuck all circus. Uh-huh. Go on and on forever. You go on and on and on and on. I know, I know. Okay. Uh, don't do drugs. Drugs are bad. Drugs are bad. Okay, children, let's take our seats. This morning, we're going to have a special lecture from your school counselor, Mr. Mackey. Ooh. Now, now, who is that? That is not appropriate behavior, okay? I'm sorry, Mr. Mackey. Okay? Uh, that's okay. Just don't let it happen again. We won't let it happen again, Mr. Mackey. Okay? Uh, okay, okay, that's fine. Okay? Okay. 
Now, uh, as your counselor, I'm here to tell you about drugs and alcohol and why they're bad, okay? So, first of all, uh, smoking's bad. You shouldn't smoke. And uh, alcohol is bad. You shouldn't drink alcohol. And uh, as for drugs, well, drugs are bad. You shouldn't do drugs. Okay, that about wraps up my introduction. Now, uh, are there any questions? Yes, Stan. Why do dogs have cold noses? Uh, well, I'm not sure. Oh. Now, uh, let's focus our discussion first on marijuana. Marijuana's bad, and it also has a very distinct smell, okay? I'm going to pass around just a little tiny bit, and I want you all to take a smell so you know when someone is smoking marijuana near you. Okay, just take a smell, pass it on, and when it gets back up to me, we'll finish talking about it. In the meantime, I want to get into alcohol a little, okay? Uh, alcohol is bad, and so uh, that's why alcohol is bad. Uh, ha has that marijuana made it back up here yet? No? Oh, okay. Let's talk about LSD. Uh, children, LSD is bad. It's a drug made famous by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Hey, are we supposed to get your little brother presents for a bris? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, dude, you better find out. Boys, are you paying attention? Sorry, Mr. Mackey, okay? Okay. Now, children, has that marijuana made it around yet? Uh, who, who has the marijuana now? Okay, whoever has the marijuana, just pass it up to the front row, okay? Uh-oh. Don't do drugs, especially if you're pregnant, don't do drugs. Yeah. If you're supervising children, don't do drugs. It won't turn out well. It's just bad. The police will come for you. Popo, at your door. Yeah, call child. Sir, protective services. And then it's just a whole mess. And then you'll be upset and you'll probably want to use more. So mm. just don't do it. Don't do drugs. It's a bad. Except for my drugs. I like my drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and for honest to goodness, stay, stay out, out of, of the, the corn. corn and the drugs. The drug fields. Today, more Americans are dying of overdoses than ever before. And this is the epicenter of that crisis. We're on a pace to have 800 people die this year due to overdose in our county. What's the percentage of, uh, of the bodies that are in here right now that are overdose deaths from heroin or fentanyl? We are averaging 60 to 70 percent of our cases now are overdoses. Do you know anybody that's died? Yes. My boyfriend and uh, my mom just died in January. You going through withdrawal right now? Yep, pretty okay. much so. Here we go! Ah! Open the door! Open the door! Do you guys mind explaining to me why we gotta put these masks on? The short answer is if you breathe it in, you could die. You said you have a nickname for this street. Um, Morgue. Avenue. Morgue Avenue. It's not Morgan, honey. It's Morgue. You literally just walked in to cash a check, and by the time you came back, your brother had gone and come back and got in an accident and then told the paramedic that he was on fentanyl. Yeah. What's it like to go through this? Hell. Hell. Every day it is hell. Welcome to Montgomery County, Ohio, where thanks to a drug so powerful it could kill you if you touch it, police work isn't what it used to be. Why is a sheriff's deputy that's supposed to be fighting crime driving around with a, with a heroin antidote? Uh, we don't have enough EMS units uh, for the overdoses. When we first started doing this, it was one every two weeks, and then it gradually worked its way into one every week, and now we're into uh, three, four, five a day. 
Um, I could probably look on my computer right now and there'd be three or four overdoses on there right now, somewhere within this county. It didn't take very long. The deputy said that there was a car accident here. You can obviously see that with the minivan here and the pickup truck. And they took one person out of the vehicle who they say have a, had a thousand yard stare, was out of it. And so now he's in the back of the ambulance here. He's my brother. Okay. My, I just lost, we just lost our dad to an overdose. You lost your dad to yes. an overdose? I come outside and there's an accident. Okay. And then he, another officer comes up and tells me that he said that he took two caps of fentanyl. Fentanyl, okay. Okay. And I don't know what, I wasn't even in the car when it happened. Do you use yourself? No, not Nothing. at all. Anybody else in your family brother. hooked on heroin or my fentanyl? Brother. How many brothers you got? Three. Three? I've tried my whole life to keep my family sober. Literally, I was so <laughs> How bad do you think the problem is in Dayton? Sick. Can I ask you a question? Did you think your brother was using? When I first picked him up, no. Not today? Not today, when I first picked him up. When was the last time you thought your brother was using? Uh, about six months ago. He was supposed to be on the Vivitrol shot. Yeah, and supposed to last like for a month, right? At yeah. least. You literally just walked in to cash a check, and by the time you came back, your brother had gone and come back and got in an accident and then told the paramedic that he was on fentanyl. Yeah. What did he look like? Oh, his eyes were glossy. You can barely open them. What did he say to you? Nothing. He loves me. He said, I love you. What did you say to him? I love you. What's it like to go through this? Hell. Every day it is hell. Traditionally, opioids like heroin are made from opium poppies. But what's ravaging this community is made in a laboratory. Over the past two years, fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that can be thousands of times stronger than heroin, has been flooding into places like here, Montgomery County, Ohio, where the overdose death rate has been skyrocketing. Through just May, overdose deaths in the county almost hit last year's total and officials estimate this year's final number will double that. Some people say that Montgomery County is the epicenter of the opiate crisis in America now. Yeah, yeah, per capita, we're number one in the nation in overdose deaths. We're on a pace to have 800 people die this year due to overdose in our county. Because when I think of, if I'm a Mexican drug cartel and I wanna bring my product into America, I'm going to the big cities. I'm not going to Montgomery County. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of strange why they picked us up, but I think mainly our location. You know, our job market's tanked. We lost all of our automotive industries. So our overdose age, the average age is between 40 and 49, and that's your primary workforce. And I think it's driven by a loss of a good job. You know, they're bringing in jobs here paying $13 an hour. Well, people can't make ends meet with $13 an hour. So people, you know, I think they're depressed. They're self-medicating, and they don't know what they're getting when they buy a gel cap that they think's full of heroin. Now we're having people overdose on fentanyl because it's so much stronger than heroin, you know? And then some of these people think they're buying heroin. Well, these dealers are mixing fentanyl in with it or they're giving them straight fentanyl and that's killing people. The first opioid of abuse was prescription pain pills, including Oxycontin. But in response to media attention, access to pills was restricted. And in their place came heroin made from Mexican poppies, cheaper and more powerful. A couple of years ago, traffickers began mixing fentanyl into the heroin. Yep, that's him. I'm getting in the car. And fentanyl is by far the most fatal drug of abuse America has ever seen. 
so fatal that relatives of users are calling the police to try to keep them from overdosing. I saw him right here. Do the thing right here. He's scooting right this way. This is just a warrant. One guy, who uh, the complainant, told us uh, he was using heroin at the time and would like us to come and arrest him on the open warrants to keep him from overdosing. They thought he got away, and as we were leaving, we saw him run through the backyard again. Uh, and now everybody's on the hunt. All of this for a guy they suspect uh, of having needles on him. Problem is, he could be in any of these vacant houses. And that's the thing. This is a neighborhood filled with man at homes. Yeah. So you live around here? Mm-hmm. You said you have a nickname for this street. Um, Morgue Avenue. Morgue Avenue. It's not Morgan, honey. It's Morgue. Which houses have people died in? What houses have they not died in? Really? Really? Really. Look at all these places, man. I mean, it wasn't like this four years ago. That's when you moved in here? Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, I clean up the neighborhood, and I got to wear these big old thick gloves and stuff because all these needles and crap, you know? It's, it's unreal. As the death rate skyrockets, the bodies come to the Montgomery County coroner, Dr. Kent Harshbarger, who performs tests to detect over two dozen varieties of fentanyl. So this is what you call the cooler? This is our cooler, our main cooler. When did the, the bodies that are all around us come in here? Um, over the last probably 24 to 48 hours. And every, every day bodies are cycling through here? Correct. These, these trays will mostly be full by tonight. What's the percentage of... Uh, of the bodies that are in here right now that are overdose deaths from heroin or fentanyl? We are averaging 60 to 70% of our cases now are overdoses. So 70% of the, the people that are in this room died probably of fentanyl? Correct. That's correct. If you could extrapolate from the numbers that you see here in Montgomery County, how many people across Ohio are going to be killed by fentanyl this year? For our system, we cover about a fifth of the state of Ohio, and we're estimating about 2,000 overdoses this year. If that continues, so that, that's about 10,000 for the state or more. 10,000 for the state? For the whole state. And that sounds that sounds like a national number, 10,000 overdoses. That's from fentanyl. Correct. Our last number last for 2016, Ohio was estimating 4,000 overdoses, and I believe we'll at least double that, if not two and a half times more this year, if this trend continues. I just saw a doctor walk out of the autopsy room towards the cooler and do this. <sighs> like, what is that about? All right, well, that's, that's probably his fourth case today. Fourth case of the day. Of the day, yeah. He's tired. We're all tired. When you think about the fact that there will be, by the end of the year, 12,000 people who have died from fentanyl in Ohio, how is that not uh, a mass casualty event? That is multiples of 9-11. Oh, it, it, it is a mass casualty event. And actually, with my friends in Cuyahoga County, we've actually been trying to put some pressure on the um, state officials to declare a health emergency. This, this is no different than some kind of mass casualty event in any other form. It's just a medical event. A medical emergency. I believe so. It, it, it needs to be recognized that way to bring some federal assets to help us. Coming up, the face of addiction. If uh, if any of your, your family or your friends catch us on TV, what, what do you want them to know? That I love him. But I'm sorry. Once the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office comes into contact with people who have overdosed from heroin or fentanyl, part of their job is following up in neighborhoods like this. It's something normally a social service office would do, but there literally aren't enough people to help. Why are you knocking on people's doors after they overdose? Well, we're the heroin capital of the world, and... He doesn't want you having him call for a Get your on the road, dude. Hey, Nicholas. 
Okay, there's other neighbors out here. I tried to come over here. That's all the more reason. And you can't yell like that. I'll do whatever I please, right? Can, can I talk to you for a minute? We're just trying to give him some services. He, we know that he overdosed on heroin last week, and we're just trying to get him some help. We're not here to be mean to him. We're just trying to help him deal with his addiction so that he's not another statistic. So we don't come back here and have to take him away in a body bag. Another recent overdose victim was just around the block. Did you overdose, Christina? I didn't overdose, my mom did. I had to watch her though. So I went through a little bit of the scene with her. I had to see her. And do, do you use also? Yeah, I use also. Yeah, I'm trying to get the help myself. So, so your mom, who's in the car here, yeah. overdosed. And did she overdose in the house? She overdosed um, over here, actually, in the field. And we had to get her back and right, the ambulance. Right here across the street. Yeah, yeah. When was the last time that you used? Yesterday. Yesterday. Mm -hmm. And how many times a week would you say you're using? Well, you use every day when you're on heroin. You have to. Every day. Sick. Yeah. You seem very clear-headed about this. Yeah. How do you stay? How do you stay so focused on getting help? Just my kids. I have kids. I have five little ones that I don't want having to go through this. They're going through things because of what I'm going through. So. Five kids. Yep. Who are you in the family? I'm a great aunt. I have the two of the youngest kids that were born addicted. You're taking care of the babies? Yeah. And they were born addicted? Yeah. This is CJ. Hey, CJ. This is when they said we'd never do anything. He was What's born up, 32 weeks, really addicted. Went through. At 32 weeks? Yeah, 32 weeks. So you're He's still in, in therapy, occupational therapy. You're a hero, bud. Yep. What'd you get, McDonald's? Yeah. What do you have? Never give up. A toy. A toy? That's awesome. What do you have, chicken nuggets? And this is Cameron. He was born at 38 weeks addicted. Hi, Cameron. He's still having some issues they haven't figured out yet. What's it like for you to see this family going through this? And it hurts because Chrissy really wants to spend time with her kids, but you can't do that while, you know, there's still active drug abuse going on. You think there's drugs in the house now? <laughs> no. You're saving these kids' lives, huh? Yeah. Just on a, uh, on a personal level, you've been in this job a while. Um, what's it like for you to see your community going through what many people outside of this community call an epidemic? You know, I worked the road when we had the crack epidemic, and which was very violent, but it wasn't to this extent where people are dying every day. So it's very sad where you see mothers dying, leaving their children behind. You know, our children's services, they have 250 children right now. They can't place with foster parents. There's that much overloaded with the demand. It's not easy to get addicts into treatment, but the sheriff's department provides a form of detox in their jail. This is one of our female dorms where a lot of these inmates are going through detox right now. So we try to keep them all housed together so they can take care of each other, some peer-to-peer -peer support, because the whole detox process is just very nasty and it, it's rough on them. And so most of the women in here are going through some kind of withdrawal right now? Yeah. Ladies, how are you? Hi there. What's your name? Kara. Kara? How did you find your way in here, Kara? I was coming here to get drugs. You traveled here to pick up the drugs. Why? Because what you pay for $5 here, you can sell for $20 where I live. So you were using and selling? Mm, yeah. Are the drugs stronger that are coming from here? Yeah. They are? Mm -hmm. Do you know anybody that's died? My dad. Your dad died? Mm -hmm. In January. In January. Sorry. It's okay. How many people that use know somebody that's died? Everybody has to, at least, probably, I bet. 
Everybody. I guarantee it. Everybody knows somebody that's died in here? Yeah. Yeah. Ten days ago. She got released from here, went out on the street, used, and she passed away. The fentanyl's killing everybody. It's killing everybody. What are you doing in here? Um, actually, for traffic and possession. Traffic and possession of? Um, uh, well, fentanyl, heroin. Fentanyl. Yeah, that's fentanyl, yeah. And were you using as well? Yes. How many years uh, have you been using? On and off, seven years, eight years. Seven and eight I've years. I've been clean one year, and then two years I was clean, and went back a couple times. And not, not no more, though. I'm done. Do you have a family? Yes. Kids? Yes. A grandbaby, so I'm done. I'm, Your grandma? Yes. Yes. They're too precious to be now, so I'm, no more. What's your name? Heather. Heather. How long have you been here? Uh, just today. Just today. You just got here? Yep. Anybody ever tell you you look like Kristen Stewart? No. <laughs> what brought you in here? Um, coming from Indiana to here to get the drugs. And wrapped up. What were you using? Fentanyl. Fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And so if you just got in here, are you, you going through withdrawal right now? Yep, pretty can, much so. Can you describe for me how you feel right now? Like crap. Like crap. <laughs> yes. I have no energy to do anything. Hot. At the same time, I'm cold. Uncomfortable. Whole body hurts. Sounds like a pretty crappy feeling. Yeah. Have you felt this way before? Yeah, I've been through it before. It's not fun. And what do you do when you feel this way? Just stick it out. It's usually when I'm in jail. <laughs> when you're in jail. Otherwise, you go use again? Yeah. How long have you been using for? About four years, five years. Nonstop? Yeah. How old are you? 29. 29. Do you have a job? No. Do you want to stop? I don't know. You're not sure yet? Right now, no. Right now, you want to be using? Yeah. Do you know anybody that's died? Yes. My boyfriend and uh, my mom just died in January. I'm sorry. If uh, if any of your, your family or your friends catch this on TV, what, what do you want them to know? That I love him. But I'm sorry. When you look at that and you compare it to other times here, where does it rank? Oh, that's the worst I've ever seen it. You know, usually you get five or six girls in that are sick. Look how many were in their beds, under their covers. You know, that, that was the worst I've ever seen it. And when, when you go in there, I mean, it's just mentally, for me, it was me it's mentally overwhelming to think about there's just one room in here, but you got thousands of people across this county that are exactly the same way. Yeah. So for you, what, what goes through your head? Well, you know, luckily they've been caught, they've been arrested, so hopefully we can get them into treatment and get them some help. But as you're hearing, if they don't go into treatment, they're going to go right back to using the same amount they used prior to getting in here. That's when they overdose and die. Here we go. When we come back, the daily battle to take fentanyl off the streets. Unlike the meth, crack, and pain pill epidemics, the fentanyl outbreak is killing people at rates never seen before. Put this in perspective for me. In, in relation to the murder rate, higher or lower? Much higher. Uh, traffic deaths? Much higher. So just about any category that you look at, 
There are more fentanyl deaths per capita than just about any other cause of death. I've never had one particular cause of death that reaches 70% of my workload. This is, this is unbelievable. You overdose, all the other addicts go to that dealer because he's got the best product in the street. Even if the guy died? Yeah, even that's what they're looking for. They're chasing the next best high. It's a strange, strange business model how you kill your, your clients. Your customers, yeah. Your customers, yeah. Fentanyl is so deadly, it's causing deaths at mass casualty levels. And taking it off the street is more critical than other drugs because any dose of fentanyl could be a fatal one. Do you guys mind explaining to me why we got to put these masks on? The short answer is if you breathe it in, you can die. Yeah. If you breathe this in, you can die? Oh, yeah. You and touch you it, you can absorb it through your skin and kill you. Just eyeballing that, what does that look like? How many ounces? About 13 ounces? Yeah. Is there any way to calculate what this means in terms of lives? There's, there's approximately a rough estimate, 360 grams here. Uh, each cap contains a tenth of a gram. And when you talk about lives, people, what do you think? Well, a tenth of a gram could certainly kill you. Oh, yeah. Um, Less than a tenth of a gram could kill you. A couple of grains of that is enough to kill somebody. It's hard to wrap your head around. To help addicts and their families, in Dayton, there are support groups like Families of Addicts. We're scared. We're lost. We don't know what to do. They come to the right place. The question that I was asking myself is, are we helping or hurting? And by we, I mean us, us families who know things about addiction and recovery. The group is run by a mother-daughter team. How did this all come about? Well, the way I say I have my 11 years of my own recovery from alcohol and other drugs, currently. But that didn't prepare me for when I found out that April started using heroin. Your daughter? Yep. And I didn't know what was wrong with her, and I saw the marks on her arm. And I said, what is that? And she said, you know what that is. And I was like, I had no clue. I felt like she knew that I was using drugs, so I just, I don't know. I mean, like, what else do you say? She kind of, like, made a scene. But I was, I think I was, like, 16. She'd walked away from help. She'd stolen a lot of my stuff. Um, I do remember asking her, can't you just not do it for one day? And she's like, no, it's not like that. And I'm like, well, then how is it? And so she like let me into what her life was like. And it was really educational. So I wanted to bring that education to other families. It's so scary. Tawny Watkins attends Families of Addicts. She says she started using opioids in 2008 after the birth of her first daughter and has been in and out of treatment and the county jail. So you've been clean for over 100 days? Yes. How'd you do it? Um, I actually fell out and quit breathing, so I that scared me. That's never happened to me before. I, when you say you fell out, what does that mean? I stopped breathing. I was taking fentanyl and heroin. As soon as I shot it, I stopped breathing. Um, that scared me, so I checked myself into rehab. Nearly every day since then, you've been in some kind of program. Yes, um, that's like what I, I eat, breathe, and sleep treatment. I have a sponsor through Narcotics Anonymous who I call every day if there's any problems or I have any like cravings or urges to do anything, not just necessarily with drugs. I just got a house with a couple friends. I got my job back. Just getting back on my feet is very hard, but... You know, I do it, and I talk about it. I share about it in my groups and meetings. That's that's one of the big keys. I keep talking about it. Yes, definitely. If I don't talk about it, that could bring me back out there, like having guilt over, you know. You got to get that stuff off your chest. Yes. Uh, are you comfortable telling me what kind of stuff? 
Um, yeah, um, I've been I've been raped several times. Um, just last May, I was going to buy drugs during the daytime in a bad area, and some guy came up behind me and grabbed me by the back of the head and drug me into the backyard of an abandoned house and violently raped me. Um, I didn't call the police because I was on probation and on the run. I wasn't checking in, so I had an active felony warrant. Um, so, but I ended up turning myself in in July. Well, when I was in booking in Montgomery County Jail, they did a pregnancy test, and I found out I was pregnant by that person. From from the rape? Yes. So um, I decided to carry the baby and give her to a family that couldn't have children, so I gave her up for adoption. So I'm still in contact with that family. But just that situation alone, like, the guilt of... Um, giving a baby up for adoption like if I don't talk about that with people and get feedback from my counselors and friends like you know that guilt could cause me to do other things that could lead me to use it's crazy to know that like one wrong move and I can be right back out there this is your mugshot yes whoa so you remember you remember that day yeah a little bit I mean I was pretty wasted in it um Ugh. It just looks like death. I feel like I should be on an episode of The Walking Dead as a zombie. Like, I just don't, I see someone who's lifeless for real. And, like, in a weird way, when you look at that, it's making you feel good about where you are? Yeah. Like, I'm so grateful I don't look like that anymore. And I'm so grateful I got a chance to get back on track because some people won't get that chance. Staying off any kind of drug of addiction can be a lifelong struggle. But now, with fentanyl, America's deadliest drug ever, there's also a race to stop using it before it kills you.